Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. This is session number 16 of the E100. Were any of you not an E100 last, last year? You were in half of it. Okay, so all of you have been here before. Okay. Uh, by way of reminder, so I can be brief in this, by way of reminder, E100 is a weekly Bible study, which we're going to be doing in the fall and the spring. We cover 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament texts. And it's actually a really good way to study the Bible because you begin to see threads that emerge. Like today, we're going to see one in a few moments. This thread that has to do with Moses and where did Moses come from and why does he matter? So the E100 is basically a, a high-level overview to, to teach you big themes in Scripture and, uh, and do it quickly. One of the things this is not is this is not a detailed study. So if you, if, um, I'll answer questions if you have them, but please, if they're not really important and they're not, I mean, I hate to say that, but uh, <laughs> don't ask me any stupid questions. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> my, one of my seminary professors said, uh, somebody once said to me, there are no stupid questions. Yes, there are. <laughs> I don't think that's true. And, I, and if you come to the adult forum on Sunday morning, you know we spend a lot of time talking about details because it's fun and it's interesting. But we don't have a lot of time in this and we have a lot to cover. Is that clear? So if, it's a, if I'm confusing you, raise, a, raise your hand. We're not going to get into Hebrew in much detail or um, those sort of rabbit trails that are fun to chase when you have more time. We're going to stick to the text and just try to, try to paint the big picture of what we're looking at. So with all that to say, uh, we're going to look this, this evening at Exodus chapter 1 verses, basically Exodus chapters 1 and 2. If you don't have this, this is the syllabus for the coming few months. It is available on the back table there. You'll have, we'll have them here every week. Uh, they'll also be on the website shortly. If somebody would like to hand out the syllabi, that would be very helpful. You will also need to bring a Bible, and I would encourage you strongly to read the text before you come, right? That's a really good, because this is a lot of information to cover. We will be reading the English Standard Version here. You are welcome to read whatever translation you like, and you can bring whatever you like, but the ESV is the one that I'm going to be reading just because I like it. So let's talk a little bit about what, what, the, uh, what the book of Exodus is all about. And then we're going to get into, uh, we're going to read through the text, and we're going to go, go through the dive in. Um, Exodus is really a, is a continuation of the book of Genesis, which we covered in the spring, right? Genesis, um, as we saw God's plan unfolding, Exodus is just a continuation of that story. If you remember, the first five books of the Bible are called the what? The Pentateuch means five writings. And historically, Moses was the author of those five books. I'll get to that in a moment. However, so Genesis is the second book of the Pentateuch, and it is important. Exodus is, is essentially divided into, into two main parts. The part about Moses, uh, God delivering his people from the Egyptians, right? We're going to talk about that, not today, but we're going to start that. So if you look at, again, big, for me, big picture is, makes understanding the text a lot easier, right? So think of Exodus like this. The first section of it is about the people in Egypt and God delivering them, 
right? Let my people go. You know that, right? And then out they go. And then the second part of Exodus is about the Jews wandering around in Sinai. And that's actually pretty profound because they're not just wandering because they're lost, because the road from here to where they're going is actually pretty short. It doesn't take you 40 years to get there. <laughs> Unless God makes it take 40 years to get there. So we're going to get to all that later. But just for your own mind, as you're reading, looking at the book of Exodus, uh, it's in two parts, broadly speaking. The, uh, the Egypt, and let, the escape from Egypt part, and then secondly, the wandering in Sinai. They're related, obviously, but those are the two big, the two big pieces. Um, Moses wrote, I would submit to you, wrote the book of Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers are the five books of the Pentateuch. And um, one thing I want you to be aware of is something which modern scholars will frequently argue that Moses didn't write the book. You, are you all familiar with this? Um, and again, one of the things I try to do in this class is not just teach you the material, but make you uh, capable consumers of biblical knowledge. So if you know, it's really common today for Old Testament scholars to say, well, Moses didn't really write the whole thing, okay? That there was actually several people who did over a period of a long time. And the reason they say that is because you kind of have to say that if you're going to try to debunk scripture. But the flip side of it is they begin to notice that there were, uh, this is back in the 1900s, the Germans were always doing these sorts of things. They began to notice that the language in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, varied. So you ever heard, uh, maybe you've been to a Bible study where a priest talked about the priestly author and the, the JD, E and P, the different sources. You ever heard that before? It's very popular and, well, not so much now, but 50 years ago, 60 years ago it was. And the idea was that there were several different authors that wrote the Pentateuch. Moses claims to have written the whole five, but if you're gonna try to debunk scripture, which some people try to, you gotta have an alternative theory. And what they do is they discover that there's different ways to refer to God and different, different topics. And so what they come up with, these scholars came up with something called the source hypothesis. You can write it down if you want, but basically there are four uh, authors, uh, the Yahwist, Deuteronomist, Eloist, and Priestly author, don't worry about that. But, but the idea is what they try to explain, the differences in language, the differences in vocabulary, by positing four different authors, and then somebody came along and stitched it all together. Now, let me just submit this to you. Ancient people weren't stupid. They just weren't. They weren't. And you can't tell me four people go in and stitch this all together and say Moses wrote it, and everyone goes, wow, yeah. I mean, come on. People aren't dumb. I would submit to you this, and a lot of modern, uh, contemporary, and uh, orthodox scholars would say this, that Moses, there are differences in language, but that Moses could very easily have written in different modes. Has anybody here ever written, written a letter, right, or typed an email? Do you always say things the same way? No. And in fact, if you look at other, if you look at other uh, Jewish writings in the time period, it was perfectly legitimate and common for people to say things in different ways, just like you do. Make sense? Point I'm trying to make, and we're going to move on, but it's important in case you go to a Bible study somewhere. The point I'm trying to make to you is that people will try to denounce that Moses wrote the Pentateuch based upon this theory. It's a theory. And I submit to you 
that you can still have these differences in language. For example, how do you refer to God is a big one with Moses writing it. Does that make sense? It's all I'm trying to say. And the reason I'm saying that to you is because when you're at cocktails tonight at 5.30 and you tell your friends you were out studying the book of Exodus and they say, oh, that's all just made up hooey and people came along and wrote the Bible over hundreds of years. That's just not true. And I want you to feel comfortable in being able to defend it, at least high level. Does that make sense? Okay. So um, what are some of the themes of the book of Exodus before we jump into today? Some of the things are, uh, I'll give you five. Uh, the first one would be salvation, freedom from bondage. These are themes which begin in the book of Exodus, and they actually find their way all the way through Scripture to the end. One of the things you'll realize uh, in this class is we're doing something called biblical theology. What does that mean? Biblical theology means this, that we are looking at the Bible as a whole. We are assuming that the Bible is God's word and that it all hangs together. You guys are hearing me say that over and over again. It all hangs together. What do I mean by that? Well, there are themes which launch in Exodus, for example, and these themes thread their ways all the way through the Bible. Right? The Bible is a unified whole. If the Bible is the word of God, and I submit to you that it is, and it's written by the Holy Spirit through people writing, but by God's inspiration, then it should hold together, right? Okay, so again, this is an important idea to look at scripture, that there's a, a, a theme, there are mega themes, meta narratives that run through the whole thing. First one, salvation. Second one is, the second theme we'll see in Exodus is the real knowledge of God. We begin to see God revealing himself more and more fully to his people, particularly when they're wandering in the desert. What do they do? They have, a, they have an ark. And they, they walk, so we'll get to that later. But that's the idea, that God reveals himself to his people. Third point, that, there, that God is a God of covenants. We saw this in Genesis, right? What is a covenant? Anybody remember? A promise. Does God's promise depend upon your keeping your end of the bargain? No. Why not? Because Jesus keeps it in your place. Does that make sense? We talk, we're talking about that in the book of in James in our sermon series. So God is a God of covenants. Jesus Christ being the one who keeps the new covenant in our place. Fourth point, the promised land. God is always saying to us, you can't stay here. You got to go. God is a God who sends people and he promises something better. Does that make sense? That thread runs all the way through the Bible, all the way to the very end when Jesus returns. Right? In the book of Revelation and reestablishes the new kingdom, reestablishes the promised land. God is always promising his people a place that he will provide for them. If you recall back to Genesis, remember God created the Garden of Eden? We started there, right? We talked about this last year or last time. And we got kicked out, got the, uh, the boot. And then uh, the whole story of the Bible is God bringing his people back in to a reconstituted Eden, i.e. heaven, at the end of time. Right? The Bible is one big, great circle. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Is that yes? Okay. If not, it will. Finally, um, um, the, far, the fifth thing I want to show you is the idea of God's, where's my, my thing? God's um, special presence among his people. Presence as in being available. Um, most ancient, in fact, all ancient religions, God is either in here, right? I'm God or, and you're God. And we're all gods, 
That's what a lot of people think these days. Either God is in here or he's out there, God in the sky. Islam, right? The God of the Bible is actually different from that. He does both. He is a God who claims to dwell with his people, in his people, particularly because with Jesus in the New Testament, but he's also present with his people in a real and significant and substantial way. So for example, we'll see in Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is where God uh, is with his people in a special and unique way. In the New Testament, we see this very same dynamic in lots of different things, but in the Eucharist, for example, right? That Jesus, that God is present in the bread and the wine, the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. Makes sense? So that's just a theme which is introduced in Exodus and has its, has, has its trajectory all the way Zebabel. Any questions or comments about that stuff? Nothing? Whew, that was a lot in just four minutes. Um, okay, one thing I want to show you, then we're going to actually go through and we're going to start the text for today, is um, uh, one more quick thing that I'm trying to teach you all is this. Is this, this the, the Old Testament and the New Testament are written with markers that show you how to read it. Now, you and I are used to chapter headings and things like that, but there's little, little devices that the biblical authors use to point things out to you, right? And we miss them because we're not used to reading it that way, but I'm going to show you them as we go through. And here's an example. If you look at Genesis chap sorry, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, do you remember, uh, and again, I'm just teaching you how to read the Bible, right? How to, how to see these things, which would miss your attention because you're not ancient Jewish people. Do you remember back in, the, in Genesis, we, I introduced this to you. Remember that? Toledo? You know, blow the dust off that. It was a long time ago. A Toledo is, Toled, it's all right, Toledot formula, you could say, is a, a way that ancient Hebrew writers would write to indicate here is a new story. Okay? And the way you do that is you list a bunch of names. So here are the generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You get the idea? So when you see the very first verses here, we're going to start reading in a second, you, you see a Toledo formula. You see it? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then he goes through, which we're going to get to in one moment. Let me give you some context before we get into this, and then we're going to, we're going to go. Who, can remind, who remembers back when we had the story of Joseph? Remember that? That was the last thing we covered. Joseph was sold by his brothers, right? And if you remember the very end, uh, Joseph, what, the, uh, Joseph was sent to Egypt because there was going to be a famine, right? God told him that. He went to Egypt. He was basically kidnapped. And through all this suffering and tragedy and deception and lying and brutality and all the just human detritus that we all live in, God still prevailed. And if you remember, what God said was, I'm going to send you there to provide for not only your family, but for the, the whole world. Remember that? Okay. Well, now fast forward, Joseph has been there, and his brothers all went. Remember, they went to, uh, to Egypt, and, they, and they, he, they, the, one of the best scenes of the whole, uh, the whole thread last time, Genesis, uh, last chapter of Genesis, is Joseph says, you, my brothers, my brothers, these guys, intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Remember that? That's where we pick up. So, ready? All right. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. 
Okay? These are the guys. Each with his own household. Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, uh, Judah. And I'm pronouncing this not in Hebrew ways because I can't. They're diff very, very different pronunciation in Hebrew. Issachar, uh, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Neptali, Gad, and Ashir. Remember, those were the seven, those were the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember? The 12 sons, each one had, uh, has a lineage, which, we're get, which we got to. All the descendants of Jacob, all those brothers and their families and, their, and everything, were 70 persons. How many went to Egypt? Seven zero. You with me? 70 persons. J Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the Lord, the land, was filled with them. So let's stop there. Uh, the nation, one of the things you need to understand about uh, um, the Jewish religion in the Old Testament, and even today, I guess, to a degree, is one of the ways you know that God is blessing you is that you have fam large families and land, right? God is always promising wealth and children. That's a mark of, of prosperity in the Old Testament. So the fact that these, Egyptian, these, these Israelites go to Egypt and they just, they're like rabbits, right? They're just everywhere. They, they, uh, that is a mark in the Jewish mind of God providing for them. This is not just a population boon. This is, this is God uh, enabled. You with me? Don't miss that detail. And, and what you see here is these people are, um, these people are the, the Israelites, Israelites meaning those who are descendants of Israel, right? Those, the father and the 12 sons. Uh, and, and just by way of reminder, these 12 sons are all the descendants of Israel are Israelites, and they are the, all the, the Jewish nation. You with me? Okay. Um, they go to Egypt and they began to expand in number a lot. Who remembers what the Israelites did as a, for, for work? How, how, they, how, they, uh, how they paid the bills? Well, not yet. No, we're going to get to that. They were shepherds. Remember that? They weren't fishermen. They were shepherds. They would raise animals. And that was what they were there doing. If you recall, Joseph was there to be put in charge of all the distribution of the crops. His brothers were given the best land in Egypt. And they begin to expand and really begin to uh, become, an, become a powerful uh, political block, if you will. You with me? That's the, that's the background. Any questions? All right. One thing, you, anybody know anything about ancient Egyptian history? All right. I'm going to tell you. When Joseph went, it was a long time ago and far, and far, far away. Okay, does anybody know this word? Uh, the word is, uh, boy, am I spelling it right? Yes. Hyksos. You ever heard that before? Remember, remember your, your ancient history in ninth grade? You learned about Hy Hyksos? Hyksos? Okay. The Hyksos were people who lived in Egypt. They were not Egyptians. They were from someplace else. I don't know where they're from. I don't know. Hick <laughs> Hickville. <laughs> they were, <laughs> I don't know where they're from. They, they were, when Joseph went to Egypt and he established there and the Pharaoh said, hey, Joe, come on in. 
Joseph was, in, was embraced by the Egyptian pharaoh, remember that? And he made him head of, the, head of the granaries and all that stuff. What you don't know is that that pharaoh was a Hyksos. He was not a native Egyptian. Okay? So here's the thing. So this Hyksos king invited in Joseph and all of his brothers to come into Egypt and party down and have the best land and be fruitful and multiply, which is what they did. Remember, that's what the God said, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's what they're doing. Well, anyway, that Hyksa, the Hyksos uh, were in power and then they were run out, right? And the new pharaoh was an Egyptian. Not a Hyksos. Is that make, now, big deal. It's hugely important. I'll show you why. So here you are, an Egyptian. You have a big group of, a big people group in your land who were brought there by your predecessor. They're not Egyptians. They were brought in by the old guy and they are very wealthy and they are running around everywhere. What are you going to do? Let's look. Now, verse 8. There arose a new king over Egypt, right? Not a Hyksos who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, by the way, let me stop there. That word behold is not just an, an, an anachronism. That word behold, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, two different words, but it's translated the same way into English. That word behold, this, um, it's an anachronism, right? No one ever says behold. But in Bible, when you read scripture, if you come across the word behold, pay attention. Okay, in the Greek, I don't know what the Hebrew word is. In the Greek, the word is a duo, and it means uh, it means it's a it's a a biblical way of focusing your attention. This is important. So if you're ever reading scripture in this translation, you see the word "behold." Pay attention. Okay, um, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse ten. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Um, here you're, the, you're an Egyptian, right? You just threw out the Hyksos. You had a war, got rid of them. And now you see, okay, I got a problem. I got enemies outside the border and I got enemies inside the border. Do you see it? Right? And so right here, and this is actually interesting. I didn't know this. If you look at the end of verse 10, uh, that our enemies might fight against us and escape from the land. That's a, the English translation there is very poor. It actually means they might fight against, our, fight against us and take over the land. So the king of Egypt, the new pharaoh, is suspicious of the Jews. He's afraid of them because it's an internal threat. You with me? Okay. Therefore, right, um, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Does that ever happen? I mean, is that ever, if you want to, um, if you are going to put people, why would you put, why would you make them, why would you work them really hard? Why would you work a people group really, really hard? Why, Jim? Because you want to get rid of them, right? You want to kill them. And, and it's kind of a passive way, you know? It's, well, maybe we just work them really hard and some of them will drop dead and they'll die of heat stroke or starve. But anyway, get the idea. But does it happen? No. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. That's important because what's the implication 
the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. What is the implication there? Why would they multiply if they're being oppressed? Because God's behind it. it. When we go to the New Testament, we're going to see this very dynamic again. When the church is oppressed, when it's persecuted, even today, what happens? Does it shrink and die? No, it grows. You know when the church shrinks and dies? When we become chicken. <laughs> when we, when we, belly up, we go belly up. When we, when, we, when we acclimate to the culture, we die. When we, are against, when we are standing against the culture, inviting the culture, but as a distinctive to it, we thrive. Does that make sense? Point being, being a faithful believer in God is never easy, and it's never without conflict. And if you think it is, you're in the wrong religion. Make sense? Okay. Um, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all the kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the king of Egypt is trying with earthly power to wipe out God's people. There's a sub story behind all this, by the way, which we'll see more clearly when it comes down to the, uh, the Exodus story. The, uh, the Egyptians were worshipers of what? Anybody know? The sun. Okay. Pharaoh is the sun god. Or at least, yeah, he's a representative of the sun god. So what you're seeing here, which are the subtext and this comes, comes out really strongly during the Exodus story, is you see a subtext is a battle between the sun god, as it were, and the god of the people of Israel. Does that make sense? Right? So if the, if the, son, if the pharaoh, I'm God, and I'm going to wipe these people out, but the more he tries to wipe them out, the stronger they become, it's not because they're just lucky. It's because it's actually, if you back up a step from a spiritual perspective, it's a battle between the gods of this world, evil, and the God of the Bible, truth. You with me? Later on, when you see the Moses leading the people out of Egypt, and there's this dueling battle between, they, you know, Moses does a sign, and then uh, Pharaoh's people do a sign. It's back and forth. And if you ever wonder why God says, I will make Pharaoh rebel, you know that? You know, that? You know I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You know, do you ever wonder why God says that? You know why? It's God saying, this sun God ain't no God at all. I have complete control over him. In fact, I'm going to harden his heart. Make sense? Okay. Don't, that's a big dynamic here. So, um, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, he shall, she shall live. Why would you do that? What do men do that the women don't do? Fight. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The midwives, why do they? Look at this verse 17. But the midwives, now okay, the Pharaoh says, when the babies come out, and, and the, they didn't actually use a footstool to bear bear children back then. This is a bit of a euphemism. What it means is the midwives would stand there to deliver the child. And what, what Pharaoh is saying is, hey, when the child begins to come out of the birth control, birth canal, kill it. 
How? Be creative. I mean, it wouldn't be terribly difficult to do. I can think of a few ways you might want to take care of that. But the idea is that the, the midwives, these Hebrew midwives, are supposed to kill the Hebrew children as they're being born. Okay? And, but, the mid, but look at this. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Um, let me just stop there. Two things. Did you notice that they're given names? Shifra and Puah. You know why? They're heroes. They are it's like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. They are national heroes. Why? Because they feared God and they did not do what they were threatened with. Now, if you didn't do what the Pharaoh told you to do, what happens to you? Right. El muerte. So the point, that the, the, again, it's, if you read it slowly, the subtext is here are these midwives. They've got to make a very clear decision, just like you and I do every day of our lives. Who shall we serve? God or the people or the things of this world? You with me? Okay. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Uh-oh. <laughs> Oops. Uh, I hear my, my phone ringing. Um, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew... This is great. I mean, I'm going to explain this to you. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God de dealt well. Look at God. Not Pharaoh. God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Do you see that? It's not... Pharaoh just kind of like, she didn't just fool Pharaoh. It was because God was behind what they did. Is, does, that, now, does that mean you can lie? That's another whole thread. But uh, one, one way to resolve this is, is as, as follows. She says that the, the Hebrew midwives said these Hebrew women are strong, like ox, they are strong like bull. Not like, not like these Egyptian women, right? These Hebrew women. And, and the commentators say it is possible it's not clear. It is possible that the Hebrew women would assist in the birth of their own child. I've never given birth to a baby. I've seen it done. I've never done it myself. <laughs> Some of you have, had it done, have done it. But to be a strong woman would be to help to deliver your own child, right? If you are helping to deliver your own child, can the Hebrew midwife try to kill it when it's born? Not if you're attentive. So there's a way to reconcile the Hebrew midwife's story with the fact they weren't actually lying they were actually saying, we, we basically, the Hebrew, mid, the, the Hebrew women are stronger than the, the Egyptian women are so wiped out, they can't even see what we're doing. But the Hebrew women are attentive. They're strong. Why? Because God's behind them. You with me? Either way, the point is, God uh, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, then Pharaoh, recognizing this isn't going the way he wanted, what does he do? He commanded all the people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, do you see what he's doing now? He's taking the responsibility out of the Hebrew wives' hands and putting, Hebrew midwives' hands, and putting it in the hands of the general populace. And what are they supposed to do? Throw them in the Nile. Why would you throw them in the Nile? Why not just bury them in the sand? Why would you do that? 
The Nile was the source of water for the Egyptians. It was also a source of, they throw their trash in it, you know, downstream. Um, one of the things about the Egyptians, they, they are sun god worshipers. They also uh, believed in divinity in the Nile River, because that's where all their water came from. Why would you take the Hebrew baby and throw the Hebrew baby into the river of your own God? Why do you think you might want to do that? Because your God is stronger Right, there's a, again, it's a, it's a battle of divinities. Again, it's not obvious, but it's a, it is potentially a battle of these two worldviews. The Egyptians saying, well, A, it's expedient to throw them in the Nile because you can't see them, they sink. B, they're carried away, so there's no evidence. But also, they are maybe kind of hoping that that Nile River God will be pleased with this Hebrew child. That's right. That's exactly right. The baby would just be cast. That's another possibility. Yep, absolutely. So that's the situation we find ourselves in, that the Pharaoh is trying desperately to get rid of these Israelites because he's scared of them. Um, and then this happens. Verse chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Why does it matter? Who is Levi? Levi is one of the, uh, look at number up in chapter, verse 2. Levi is one of the 12 sons of who? Israel, right? So why is it important that Moses has a, a dad, Amram is his name, who is a Levite and his mom is a Levite? Why is that important? Why does the author tell us that? And it makes, him, it makes him a full-blooded Jew, Israelite, correct. Of the, of the priestly, yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet, but you're right. The Levites later on become uh, one of the priestly castes of the, of the, in the Jewish, of the, the tribes. They are the ones that handle the, the sacrifice, sacrificial stuff. But Moses comes from a, a, a lineage of people in the covenant. That's the important part, those 12 boys, okay? So the man, so that's why... That's why those details are in there. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that she ha he, w he was a fine child, she hid him, excuse me, three months. Um, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him, a took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Now, let me stop there for a minute. Why after three months? She hangs on to him for three months. There's a, there's a nope, we don't actually know why, but... He was, uh, no, they don't wean their kids till they're four. That's, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. That's right. Um, probably because, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when my kids were little, when, when, they're, when they're really little, when they're, like one, when they're like two, three months old, they sleep all the time. They cry too, but they pretty much sleep. You know, you feed them, they cry. I mean, I know not always Father Gerda, but usually they sleep for the most part. And so... <laughs> The commentators tend to think that maybe at this point, after three months, it was becoming no longer, she was no longer able to hide him, right? And so she's like, I got to do something. Now, put yourself in her shoes. She has a boy. What happens, to, what happens to Hebrew boys when they're born if they make it past the midwife? Out into the, into the drink. So she's got a problem. She goes, and I, and I want to show you something fascinating here. I did not know this. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. Does that sound familiar to you? Ah. Remember when Noah built the ark? What did he cover it with? Right. 
She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his, so let me just show you this. That word that of the thing, the basket she puts him in is the same word for ark. It is the same word in the Noah story. I don't have the Hebrew word, but it's the same Hebrew word. And so when, and again, one of the things you have to remember about scripture is it's thematic. There are threads that go all the way through. One of them being that God saves people through water, right? He saves them through water a couple of different ways, you know, by letting the, the uh, ocean wash over his enemies, but he puts them in an ark with how does God save his people? He piles them all in an ark. Noah gets in the ark. Off they go, and everybody else is destroyed. Here, we see the, the second ark. It's the same exact word, but now we have the new Noah in there. His name is Moses. And from Moses, God is going to deliver, use Moses to deliver God's people through water, right? Through the Red Sea. Make sense? In the New Testament, we see references to the church as, what do you think? The Ark of Salvation. So the point is this idea of, a, this idea of God taking a, an individual or a group of people, a small group of people, and protecting them and using them to advance his uh, presence in the world happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And it culminates with you the church. How many of you have been to our chapel before? Anybody? Okay. Well, actually, even in this room, this room is kind of actually like it. If you look up in this room, what's it look like? A keel of a ship. In the, in the traditional construction of buildings, our chapel is one of them. The main church is not. But if you look, if you're ever in the chapel and you look up, you'll see a, you'll see a keel and you'll see beams going across. Why do you think that is? Because the church is the ark of salvation. So this idea of an ark is a repeating and recurring theme all through the Bible. And we see God puts Moses in this ark to protect him and to, in a sense, use Moses, as we'll see in a minute, to advance his kingdom. Make sense? Any comments or questions about that before we move along? Am I, get, am I throwing too much at you? You sure? Okay. Um, let's keep going. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Now the mom, Moses' mom, puts him in the river and, and you know, she's thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? They're going to find this kid. Someone's going to kill him. But what are you, you going to do, right? What is, when his mother puts him in the river, what is she actually doing? She's, well, she's, well she's, got, she's, she's actually doing what Pharaoh told her to do. But, uh, <laughs> but ostensibly. But what does, it, what does it require for her to actually do that? It requires her to trust who? God. Anybody here ever had to do something in your life you had absolutely no idea how it was going to take, turn out? Of course you have. That's actually what I want you to see here. The pastoral implication of this, she knows the right thing to do, which is not to throw him into the Nile, but she does put him in the Nile in an ark. And she puts him there and she thinks, oh my gosh, Lord, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you? You've been there before, right? We've all been there. And watch what happens. This is the coolest thing. She puts him in the reed, puts him, places it in the vessels by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So Moses' older sister standing there watching all this. The daughter of Pharaoh, verse 5, came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and took it. When she opened it, 
she saw the child, and behold, he was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Notice something. What should she do with it? But she doesn't. You see people that are willing to follow God's law over Pharaoh's law. People that are willing to follow the God of the Bible rather than the God of their culture. This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, then Moses' sister, this is the great irony in all this, says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? Do you see what's going on here? Moses' older sister standing and says, hey, Pharaoh's daughter, I got, she says, here's one of these kids. Pharaoh's, daughter, Pharaoh's daughter's probably thinking, oh boy, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? And Moses' sister says, you know, I know a pregnant lady, I know a pregnant lady who'd be a great wet nurse for that kid. Guess who it happens to be? Moses' mother. You see what's happening? Do you, do you see it? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now, the child's mother is Moses' mom, right? But I, what I want you to see here, and, and I'll move on in a second, is the wonderful way that God threads all this stuff together, even though nobody really planned it. I mean, and once you could say that, you know, Moses' older sister stood there to kind of like, you know, maybe she's going to try to pull a fast one. But the thing I want you to see is that in God's providence, he moves all these pieces together to put Moses' mother right in the right spot, Moses' sister right in the right, in the right spot, Pharaoh's daughter, whose heart was apparently open to this child enough that she didn't just kill him outright. And in so doing, God saves Moses. And another thing, too, I want to point out to you, I find it, as a Christian, one of the things which drew me to Christianity way back when I was kind of rediscovering my faith was this idea that God places incredible responsibility into the hands of people, doesn't he? Right? I mean, think of it like this. When, when the angel Gabriel goes to Mary and says, hey, Mary, I got an idea. And she says, oh. And she says, behold, you will conceive and bear a son and call him Emmanuel. And she says to him, what, what manner, what does this mean? And he explains to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and, and you'll, be, you'll conceive by God. And Mary, this 15-year-old farm girl from Okefenokee, says, okay. What if she had said no? <laughs> well, I don't know. That's a good question. It's, it's, it's an unknown. But the, point, but, that's, but the point, though, the point is, I want you to see here, and again, it's another thing which I just find fascinating. In, in the God of the Bible, he places incredible responsibility uh, on people, right? Moses' mother could have, I mean, who knows? It just, he works through us, is what I'm driving at, right? He works through plain old ordinary knuckleheads like me, and thanks be to God for that, because that's just the way he is. The God, every other world religion uses the powerful and the prestigious and the wealthy and the, you know, um, who's the football guy right now who's big on TV? Uh, the Neil guy? Um, Copperdick? Whatever his name is. Kaepernick. Um, that's what power in this world uses. The God of the Bible uses the nobodies, always. And this is an example. Um, and Pharaoh's daughter, look at verse, verse 9, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only does Moses' mother get him back until he's four, because they would nurse their kids until they were four years old, which I don't know how you do that, but they did. And then she gets paid for it. God has blessed her in her faithfulness. When the child grew older, she brought when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay? That's where Moses came from. This, I want, but I, the important thing to see here is God's hand is all over this, even though the people in the story don't know it. That's the important thing. And in your own life, when things are, when, you know, the bottom falls out, which it will, uh, you have to understand that God is still in the details of your life and moving the pieces around on the chessboard, even though you have the foggiest idea. All he requires of us is to be what? Faithful and trusting, because he works it out. Okay, Anything, any questions on that? We're going to move into this next stage, and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, okay, now, we fast forward now 36 years, and the way you know that is verse 11, the very first two words are one day. You see that? Um, remember, you never read a nursery, a nursery rhyme where a nursery rhyme says, once upon a time. Yeah. Okay, what, when you read once upon a time, what does that tell you about the story? It's a, it's a beginning, but is it, if you were to read a history book about World War II, would it say once upon a time? What, what starts with once upon a time? A fairy tale. Fiction, fairy tale, kid story. That little, that little once upon a time tells you this is a, a children's story and it's fiction. This expression here, one day, right, in the Hebrew, and the Greek is this way as well, means after a period of time, an unsubstantiated period of time, but we now know it's 36 years, Moses appears again. It's a big gap, okay? One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on, his, on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, where has Moses spent the last 36 years of his life? In, in, in Pharaoh's house, just like, just like Joseph, who would have been his, what, uncle, I guess? I don't know. Um, Moses has found himself in the, he's got, a, he's got a Hebrew name, right? He lives amongst the Hebrews. And one day, after 30 years of living in the palace, he went out to his people, which kind of makes you wonder, did he, had he gone out before? <laughs> don't know. But he looked on their burdens. That means he noticed that they were struggling and, and it resonated with him. He looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him and he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, how do you think his Israelite people are going to take that? Do they, know he's an, do they know he's an Israelite? Moses is? That actually I don't know. But let me see here. Um, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in, in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. The jig's up. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. The thing I want you to see here is what, something happened in Moses. I don't know, it, it, the one thing we do know is he saw, after 30 years, he sees the oppression of his people, which clearly he'd seen before, but for some reason, something sparked in him. He, 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 uh, he looked on their burdens as a way of saying, for some reason at that moment, he finally saw them being mistreated and went, I got to do something about this. 
You ever been in a part in your life, a period of your life, when you finally said, you know, I can't, enough's enough? Right? Or you finally, something you had seen forever and ever, either, maybe it's in your family dysfunction or people you work with or where you live or whatever, where you, where you work, and you finally go, you know, I just can't take this anymore. Ever have that happen to you? I hope so. Because Moses did. He takes matters into his own hands. He kills the man. And then he runs away because he knows that the, uh, that the, the plot has been discovered. Um, now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water and filled up their troughs with their, for their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Can I show you something right there? There's these women, these, these uh, men that are there at the well. There's a bunch of women trying to come out and collect water. They're trying to collect water. What happens to young women when there's a bunch of older men standing around? Do they go, oh, hi, ladies. Come on in. Would you like some water? No. They're giving them a hard time. And what, what does Moses do? He takes them on. He goes after them. Moses has, Moses has in his makeup, whether it was always there and it was latent, or whether it was just a new thing that God had raised up inside of his psyche, I don't know. But clearly he has in his makeup a, a desire to defend those who are in a state of unable to defend themselves. Okay? He does it again here. And, and they said, an Egyptian, uh, when, when they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon? And the, the daughter said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. The man said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. He's going to have dinner with us. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershon. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is Moses. This is the prelude to the, uh, the bigger stuff that happens next time. But then the last thing I want to leave you with, because this is, this is really cool. During those many days, let's get another expression in Hebrew after a period of time. The king of Egypt died. So what's changed now? Moses is now in Midian. He's living with his wife and new kid. He's, having a, he's built a white picket fence around his house. He's settled in. He's got, you know, got the, a new dog. And life is good, right? Big, big screen TV, 4K, which are awesome, by the way. Um, he's comfortable. Moses is settled in, like a lot of us do. During, and then the, the, Moses puts a little bit of detail in there, which is fun. Watch this. During those, day, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, right? And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried for help. What's changing? Who, what's, what are the situation, what's the situation on the ground back in Egypt that's changed? The king that threw Moses out is, is dead. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they did what? They, they whined, right? What do they do? Look at it. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Um, when it's, let me just back up and show you something which is really important. It's another theme which repeats itself in Scripture. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning. God heard people's crying out. What has changed at this point, according to the, according to the, uh, the text? They've been, they've been complaining about slavery since Moses ran out 30 years earlier. 
What's changed? Their cry for rescue from, um, they cried out to God for help. Verse 23, God heard their cry, their groaning, and it says God remembered his word. Can I, I need to show you this. This is important. Um, that idea of God remembering his word does not mean what you think it means. It does not mean God's like, oh, oh. Is that what that noise has been all these years? <laughs> that's what it sounds like, right? And that's why a lot of people, when they read this, go, what is this Bible thing about? That's actually not what it means. When it says that God remembered, two things are happening here. The people cry out to God for help. That's important. So they remember God. And then it says, when it says God remembered, what it's actually saying is God is being faithful to a covenant he had made before. God is, God is doing something based upon a, a, a former promise. It says so. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What was that covenant? To protect his people, right? So when it says God remembered, and you hear that word remembered used frequently, even in the New Testament, it doesn't mean that God forgot. God is omniscient. He doesn't forget anything. And he's atemporal. He doesn't live in time. So it's not like he changes. But what it means is God goes, I'm going to fulfill the covenant I made. I'm going to do it now. Is that clear, everybody? Because you'll see that over and over and over again in the Bible. And I want to make sure you understand that when it says God remembered, it doesn't mean like when you and I remember. It means he is going, I'm now going to act on the covenant that I made before. I'm going, to, I'm going to act on my promise. And in fact, another, I'll get you in a second, uh, Martha. Another similar expression is, you know, when people say, uh, let it, Mary says, for example, let it be to me according to your word. You ever heard that and wonder what in the world does that mean? It actually means the same thing. It means you promised this. I'm going to take you at what you've promised me. Make sense? Okay. It's important. It's just trying to render ancient Hebrew into English. And this is the best English word to go with it but it doesn't actually do it justice. The word means that God is fulfilling a covenant promise he'd made earlier. He's recalling that event and making it and manifesting that change. Whew, that's a lot to cover. He could have done it at any time. Well, that's a good question. Janie says, Janie says God could have done that at any time, and that is true. God could have done that at any time. What the text tells us is that the Pharaoh has died. It's a new Pharaoh. That's got to have something to do with it. Circumstances have changed, and the people have cried out to God for help. That's the change. Yes. How many people today in, in our country, there's a lot of things, I'm, I don't do politics. I have, I have strong political opinions, and many of you know who they are. However, um, how many of us, even in our own world today, pray God help us, right? And, and if we don't, it's to our own, God's like, hey, look, you know, I'll help you, but I'm not, if you're not going to ask for help, I'm not going to, I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to violate human free will. God requires us, not requires, God waits for us to help him. And, and it's kind of like, anybody here have kids? Right? If your kids are engaging in, if your kids are adults and engaging in self-destructive behavior, and you, are they, they, if you say, if you try to correct them before they ask you, does it ever work? No. No. Makes it worse. Makes it worse. Like, they did, like, like, like what happened to Moses? Who are you going to lord over us? But finally, at some point, those kids or the Israelites or us come to the point and go, Lord, I need you to help me. Okay, now let's get this, let's get this show on the road. Right? God remembers his covenant and he fulfills it. They didn't even think about it. 
How many, well, how many, how many of us, how many of us, when we're suffering, the very first thing that comes to our mind is, I'm going to ask God to help me. Nah. First thing you do is you, well, maybe you do, but most people don't. And most people, what they do is they, you know, check their 401k, they check their meds, they go to the hospital, they call their friends, they do all the things to try to control the situation. They rarely go, you know what, God, I got no control. I need you to help me because I'm at the end of my rope. Most people don't do that until they're at the end of their rope, right? I don't usually, and if I'm not careful, and that's the idea here, that people don't usually ask for God until they're at the end of, the end of their rope and they cause their own suffering and misery, right? I mean, we've all got families, you've seen that a hundred times, you know. So, good point. Anything else? Um, somebody have a question for me? I got a minute, one minute. Did you all learn anything today? What'd you learn? God's faithful. God is faithful. What else did you learn? Anything you take away? The Nile runs north. north the, the Nile runs north. <laughs> yeah, sure. If, if this is really the first pharaoh, Akhenaten, Akhenaten had some trouble producing children. I don't know if you have delved into it. No. He had a very odd shape. And he had an elongated head. And through marriage, he had a lot of trouble producing children. Okay. The children didn't look like regular Egyptians. So did okay. Moses understand that he didn't look like Akhenaten's kids and could be adopted? That I have no idea. The, the, well, there's lots of theories. The, the text doesn't tell us who the pharaoh was. We don't know. Um, it, there's no way to know. I mean, you can... Do some guessing, but it's kind of impossible. I mean, this is ancient. This is ancient text. There's no other corroborating evidence around. It's not that there's no other historical record to judge. I mean, there are some, but most of it's kind of silent or gone. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Next week we're going to be looking at uh, the continuation of the Moses story with the burning bush narrative, which is chapters three and four. And let me encourage you, since we've already covered one and two, read it again. It'll take you five minutes to read it again. And, and uh, read it a couple times so that you really let this kind of seep into you and, uh, and, and, uh, and let God's word uh, change you. Again, the whole point of Bible study is not just to learn about facts. It's to do it, right? Right? Make sense? Faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. So take what the text tells you and use it. Shall we pray? The Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which challenges and comforts us. We thank you, Lord, for Moses, whom you chose to be your vessel, to be the one who would lead your people out of slavery. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who leads us out of our own slavery and sets us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you've enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.